in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Today, I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? It's a beautiful rainy day here in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Now, we're going to go way, way, way back, and to join us, we're going to have a first-time guest. Isn't that pretty exciting? That's always exciting, Russell. Yes, you sound very excited. (laughs) I am. This is my excited voice. All right, and... Peter Warden from the Retro Reviews podcast is joining us today. Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's nice to talk to both of you and happy to be here. Now, if Retro Reviews sounds familiar, you're noticing that there's been some crossover action before here. Your co-host, Ray Castillo, came on the show last summer and did uh, Singing in the Rain with us. And that, we had a good time there. And then I got to come join you guys around Christmas time and we did Scrooged on your show. So... This is uh, helping to complete the picture a little bit. And Peter, welcome to Retro Movie Roundtable. Thank you. Yes, happy to be here. And thanks for coming on to our show, too. That was a really fun episode. And, I, and I've heard uh, Ray's Singing in the Rain episode as well. And it was really, really cool to hear that. Um, yeah, I'm in, I love the crossover and uh, looking forward to seeing what we dig out of this. Yeah. So you're from San Francisco. You have your own podcast, Retro Reviews. Why don't you tell people a little bit what Retro Reviews is all about? Ah, well, Retro Reviews, we've been doing it for about two years now. Basically, we look at a movie uh, from our childhood. Well, that's kind of how we outline it, movies from our childhood. Sometimes we talk about movies we haven't even seen before. But we talk about movies that are as old as 1980 and as new as 10 years ago. So basically from 1980 to 2010. We're up to 2010 now because time just moves right by. It was 2008 when we started. So... Uh, Yeah, it's a lot of fun just digging into the past. We talk about movies that we've seen a hundred times and movies that we may have just seen once or twice as a young kid and just seeing how they hold up today. And uh, yeah, we we have continued pretty much at a nonstop pace every week for the last two years, and it's been a lot of fun. And uh, Ray and I have been friends for a long time, and um, yeah, he's a great person to work with. I see. I notice how you guys uh, sometimes challenge yourselves by going back and uh, um, aggressively going after movies that you know didn't hold up sometimes. <laughs> yeah, in a way. I mean, there's a movie which uh, is, I feel like still to this day is incredibly popular, but I just had to bring it out and just like kind of kind of give it a beat down. And it was Red- Wedding Crashers, which I just had a a lot of fun really talking about because it's, it's just a movie I've never really appreciated. And I just had to say, OK, 15 years later, what does it look like now? And uh, yeah, we we were not fans of that. Um, but generally, I feel like I give out I mean, I'm. I'm constantly doing movies that I know I love. So I'm try- I try every now and then to, well, hopefully more so this year. We're trying to do it more and more, like go to movies that 
we're pretty sure we aren't going to be fans of or movies that we have no idea about instead of just movies that we know we love. So uh, there's some, yeah, we're kind of going all over the map right now. And even though we only have a 30 year time span, there's just so much to look at in those 30 years and so much that has changed in filmmaking since then in just the last 10 years. So uh, yeah, it's really fun to explore all of that. Peter, getting to know you a little bit more, what is the last movie you saw? I already went back and watched for a second time because I loved it so much. And that was Uncut Gems from the Safdie Brothers. I thought it was uh, uh, completely uh, egregiously snubbed at the Oscars. I think it's, uh, I mean, Adam Sandler proving, uh, as far as I'm concerned, proving again that he's a fantastic actor despite his reputation uh, for doing a lot of uh, really below... um, uh, boy, about really like subpar, like ground level work. He really has uh, grown and matured as an actor in a really wonderful way. And uh, yeah, folks, if you haven't seen that movie, it did pretty well at the box office. I feel like a lot of people have seen it, but uh, but if you haven't, uh, that is just it is just a spellbinding and in- wildly intense experience from start to finish uh, for. Uh, you know, for a movie that you know on paper it doesn't sound like it would be that exciting. It's just about a guy who. Basically, as um, not a gambling problem. Well, kind of, yeah, like a gambling problem. A guy who's like uh, just obsessed with like getting the getting to the next score and uh, like getting like one dollar after another. And um, yeah, maybe really has a problem in that way. But it's uh, the way it's filmed, the way it's shot, the way the rapid fire dialogue and like constant profanity and violence all over. The, it is just it's so intense for its entire 135 minutes it is it just is relentless in the best way and um yeah highly recommend people check that movie out so better or worse than little nicky <laughs> you know as someone who considers himself to be kind of an adam sandler apologist little nicky may be the worst adam sandler yeah, i think I've so ever. too <laughs> jack and jill begs to differ I yeah I would put Jack and Jill above Little Nicky honestly personally. Pacino showed up and it was a better movie. <laughs> that's all you got to do. Yeah, just put Pacino in there. It doesn't matter what the rest of the movie is. You've got a better movie than Little Nicky, bro. Uh, but but folks, uncut gems. Yeah, like you know, d- try as as difficult as it may be, try not to hold Jack and Jill against him when watching uh, Uncut Gems because boy, it is just it's really a fantastic work. And in case you missed it, we did a Sandler movie last week. Despite some sound mishaps, uh, Happy Gilmore is out there and available for download as well. So that's fun. Oh, cool. And yeah, looking forward to hearing that one. So that was an appropriate uh, in, in keeping with the theme. Uh, today's movie is a silent movie. What's the funniest thing you've heard in a movie theater? I'm just going to, this may be a totally random answer, but it is the first thing that pops into my head. When I was 11 years old and saw the movie the fifth element and Bruce Willis is like asking, being asked from some like a robot, like an off screen uh, voice that says, are you classified as human? And he just deadpan responds a uh, negative. I am a meat popsicle. As an 11 year old kid, I thought that was the funniest thing I had ever heard in my life. I missed the last 10 minutes or the next 10 minutes of the movie because I could not stop laughing at that. I thought, yeah, so yeah, not necessarily a comedy movie or a comedy moment, but that just still to this day stays with me how how much I just could not stop laughing in that moment. Oh, there are definitely some funny moments in uh, Fifth Element. I mean, if nothing else, uh, uh, was it Chris Tucker uh, who was. 
Chris Tucker. That's the first place I ever saw him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's like, oh my God, Heather Goldman does. <laughs> and how annoying he would be to Corbett. Like Corbett just like is not having Chris Tucker's shtick. It's just, oh boy, it's, it's great. And also, I mean, multi-pass has become quite a classic line as well. And I remember kind of chuckling at that too. So yeah, there's plenty of comedy in the fifth element so, as far as um, science fiction movies go. Now, uh, Charlie Chaplin is a key guy that we're going to be studying today. Obviously, he is a landmark in comedy. Who is your favorite comedic actor, Peter? It's so interesting. I mean, just going through retro reviews, just feeling like how the idea of the comedic actor seems to be kind of going away. I feel like all the comedic actors from my childhood, like Jim Carrey and... uh, you know, uh, and even Will Ferrell nowadays and Steve Carell, like they were comedic actors 10 years ago, but now they're kind of seen more as serious, serious actors. Um, I mean, Jim Carrey, it's, but still, even to this day, Jim Carrey is, uh, well, he did just do Sonic. I haven't seen that, but I can't imagine that's a particularly dramatic role for him. Um, uh, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go a different way and say Jack Lemon is a guy who has like from from before I was even a kid discovering Jim Carrey. He is a guy who has always made me laugh so hard, always made me cry, just kind of like it really, really runs the gambit all around. And uh, I mean, he does con- <laughs> he does consider Charlie Chaplin to be a major inspiration. That just hit me as well. I didn't necessarily uh, intend to. Um, do a contemporary of Charlie Chaplin with that answer, but uh, Jack Lemmon in movies like The Odd Couple and The Great Race and uh, and Some Like It Hot and The Apartment, he just he makes me laugh so hard to this day and just like always has it when he's on the screen, I have a smile on my face. So I'm just gonna go and uh, give that answer there. He's also my favorite actor with a food in his name. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. yeah. How long is that list? <laughs> Uh, so far, one. <laughs> All right. That's, that's better than anything <laughs> Chad, I'm going to throw that one to you. Who's your favorite comedic actor? John Cleese. Got to oh. go with a Monty Python representative. That's a great one. And uh, we covered a John Cleese movie with uh, Rat Race, polarizing movie yep. for the Retro Movie Roundtable crew. Eh, only for Brian. Who liked it, who didn't? Chad and I loved it, and our other uh, co-host who's not on with us today, Brian, hated it. (laughs) Really? Oh, I I love that. We've done that episode for uh, Retro Reviews, or that movie for Retro Reviews as well. And um, yeah, I I liked it more than Ray, but I think he he seemed like he kind of liked it, yeah. I was going to say, you tend to be the more forgiving of the two, and I remember Ray was kind of (laughs) cool on it, so yeah. Um, yeah, he was kind of middle of the road or being polite, I guess. But uh, but yeah, I I'm a huge fan of Rat Race. I think it I think it holds up splendid. Our co-hosts are wrong, and they're not here to defend themselves. That's right. Yes. Wow. <laughs> three out of three guests here approve. <laughs> Rat Race is great. That's that's you got our opinions, and that's that's all you need right here. So. Um, but John Cleese, fantastic answer. That is that's um, you know what I have John Cleese's autograph, and I will treasure that forever. That's uh, I'm a huge fan of his as well. So. Man, you just got to go buy his fake teeth from Rat Race now to complete the collection. Oh, those are just priceless. <laughs> that, that what a luck for him, man. <laughs> Now, uh, you stop at 1980, Peter, but we here, we, t- we go back as far as, I guess, the dawn of time. So, <laughs> uh, Chad, what movie are we going to do today, man? From the dawn of time, also known as 1928, The Circus. 
All right. So the 1928, this is a Charlie Chaplin film. The Circus was the seventh highest grossing silent movie in uh, cinema history. It uh, takes in more than $3.8 million in 1928. And uh, that is a lot of money for 1928. I can't give you box office counts on the year. I normally tell you what, where it places in the box office that year, but it's just too old for reliable records. All I know is The Singing Fool was number one in 1928. So IMDb gives The Circus an 8.2. The critics from Rotten Tomatoes give it a 96%, and the audience score is a 94%. So this is held in very high regards. Chaplin was nominated for four Academy Awards, but the Academy took Chaplin out of the running by giving him a special award for writing, acting, directing, and producing The Circus. I don't know why they did that, just to kind of stick it to them. The Academy no longer lists Chaplin's nominations on their official list of nominees either, although an unofficial list does include him for Outstanding Picture, Best Director, Best Comedy Picture, which I wish they still had, uh, Best Actor, Best Writer, and, and Best Writing for Original Story. So it's my understanding Chaplin was not a fan of the Academy and kind of stuck it to the Academy and they didn't like him back. And this might be why I don't know beyond that. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that one, Peter. I mean, that does, he did have, um, I mean, it's a lot, even going back to then, it feels like the Academy never really took comedy seriously. And around the same time, like they never took animation seriously. So like Walt Disney was just getting these special awards and Charlie Chaplin just gets these special awards, but doesn't get the actual competitive awards. And I know in uh, 1940, he did The Great Dictator. That was nominated for Best Picture. He was nominated for Best Actor. And uh, um, he did not, like, that was the one time, like, that could have been finally Charlie Chaplin's moment at the Oscars, and it didn't happen. And so I think, like, just forever, he was just not a fan of it. And that that is so weird that he was nominated in those four categories, and in, they just instead just gave him a special Oscar. That's just such a... It's such a weird thing to do. And I just discovered that in doing research for this episode. I, I knew he won the special Oscar, but I didn't know that that was because they scrapped the regular nominations for the movie. That's very odd. It is very odd. It's almost like uh, going back to like Titanic with James Cameron and being like, here, James Cameron, have one for uh, an attaboy. And uh, okay, <laughs> now for everybody else. <laughs> that would have been nice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe maybe that was the situation. They just didn't want him to sweep all the categories. So they're just like, yeah, instead, here's here's a special Oscar where you don't actually beat anybody. You just have this Oscar for uh, for this prestigious um, icon right here. I, I don't know that the logic there just doesn't make sense to me. But I, yes, I do love that they did comedy uh, split comedy and drama back then. That's pretty nice. I think that uh, I'm imagining a, his trophy to be like a ghetto trophy, like with like some tape on it too, like and like <laughs> like a like a marker like written on it crudely, like for like special Oscar for Charlie. <laughs> like, it's a retrofitted bowling trophy or something like that. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, poor Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> he did eventually win a lifetime achievement award, though, and he showed up for that. And that's um, if you look on YouTube, that's a pretty amazing. Right there, where Jack Lemon actually Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau actually presents him with it. So uh, that's uh, yet another connection there. So he did he wasn't all bad with the Academy, but yeah, clearly not the best relationship for a while. So. I think they should have had a mime present it. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, any uh, any big enough um, names in the mime community to show up at the Oscars might have been a, t a struggle to get. But um, that, uh, but yeah, there's an idea there. <laughs> Now, uh, Peter, had you seen the circus before? 
I had seen it before, but it's probably the Chaplet movie that I'd seen the least number of times. Um, I've, I mean, I've seen, I'm, I am a Chaplin fan. I'm a big fan of his work. Uh, I've seen his other movies that came out around this time, like the gold rush and city lights and modern times and the great dictator. Those are kind of the big ones. Uh, I'd say at least 10 times each this one I'd seen once or twice beforehand. So this was, um, uh, relatively fresh as far as Chaplin goes for me. What's, is it holding up well for you as you watch it over and over or, and what's it like coming back to it now? That's, you know, that's the weird thing about the circus. You know, it, I, when I first discovered it, uh, when I first discovered Chaplin, it was, uh, on Hulu that this is back when the Hulu had the criterion collection. I just decided one day, Hey, it's time for me to discover Charlie Chaplin to finally watch these movies. And, uh, I just looked for the names that I recognize, like the gold rush. I feel like that's a pretty, that's a very famous movie. City lights is a very famous movie. Modern times is a very famous movie. Then I spotted the circus and I assumed it was just like one of his like more minor like shorts or something or something that maybe came before he got big. Uh, but no, it came right in between the gold rush and city lights. This was in his heyday, but I had never heard of it. It's something that for some reason seems to get kind of buried in his uh, in his filmography in a weird way, despite being one, a super big hit, one of the highest grossing movies of its year and uh, winning Chaplin one of his only Oscars. So I don't know what it is about the circus that makes it so hidden, but uh, but even for me, it's something that I didn't come back to that often. Even though, like watching, I was like, oh, this is like this is a legit Chaplin feature. This fits right in with uh, some of his most famous work, and it still really made me laugh. I was laughing out loud at times that uh, and, and moments that I had forgotten because it's it's been a few years since I last watched it, and um, just. Looking at the artistry and the physical capability the guy has, the sense of grace that he has with every one of his movements, is uh, it's so compelling still to this day, almost literally almost 100 years later. This movie is 92 years old, so um, and uh, I, I feel like it holds up just as well. You know, I wouldn't call it his best movie, but it, it is a worthy um, entry into this uh, incredibly legendary filmography this guy has. Wow, you were very versed in Charlie Chaplin. So, uh, <laughs> Chad, are you as familiar with Charlie? No, this... I mean, I've seen snippets of various uh, Tramp films, but this was my first full feature. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so what did you think? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had a good time. I would recommend it to anyone. you feel like the, his comedic... Uh, sense as a silent movie maker how does that feel watching it today chad i mean it's it's still familiar to me i grew up on looney tunes and a lot of what he does i saw replicated by bugs bunny or daffy duck or it, it's all very familiar to me it's not exactly you know uh ray sided um or peter wow i'm gonna do the opposite of russell um, <laughs> uh, cited like Will Ferrell or Jim Carrey. I, I don't think it's on that styling, but it feels very Looney Tunes, Warner Brothers esque. Interesting. For me, this is my first Charlie Chaplin film as well, uh, short of maybe minor scenes that you've seen here and there. And uh, I was really surprised at the depth of the movie, and I was I was expecting 
more of a Marx Brothers slapstick kind of thing because I'm, I'm very versed with them. But uh, I found uh, something quite different as we got into it. There was a lot of sentimentality to it. And studying Chaplin a little more while learning about this movie, uh, it was quite a trademark for Charlie. And it was a big part of the reason that he was able to build the comedy genre up. So uh, I think that this is an interesting still frame in time. I would say as a viewer... It's, it's almost like I'm watching another kind of movie, and I, I guess the fact that it is a silent movie is, but I mean, Mary, my wife, put it well when she said, I feel like I like watch like an art film or something like that <laughs> where I this doesn't necessarily feel like a movie as we think of it as today. So I would say my experience with it was somewhat surreal. This is only my fourth silent movie. Love it. Love it. I love, it. I love that uh, that um, you both were kind of that this was your first full uh, Chaplin experience. I'm, I'm glad that uh, you were able to to experience it for the first time. Cool. So there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you haven't seen The Circus, first of all, it's free on YouTube. So check it out and then enjoy <laughs> yes. the rest of this episode. We will be back after these messages. President Donald J. Trump here from the White House. You know, America, we don't win anymore. Our podcasts are going over to seas to India. They're leaving across the border to Mexico. They're going to China. It's very sad to see, really. America, I win at everything I do. And if you want to win, too, you got to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and get the Retro Movie Roundtable, an amazing, luxurious five-star review, and comment, tell them how to make the show better, and they, too, will win like I do. That's not all we're going to win by going to like the show on Facebook, and Facebook is going to pay for it, believe me. Also, email the show at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Do this, and we will bring great podcasts back to America, like my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. Soon you will see we are winning again, and you are going to win so much, you're going to get tired of winning. We're going to win more than Charlie Sheen. Believe me, I know Charlie. He's a very reasonable man and a very good friend of mine. This message was endorsed by President Donald Trump. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad, for those who haven't seen The Circus since 1928, do you want to refresh people's memory? <laughs> I will refresh all those, what, 120-year-olds that are listening to our podcast? <laughs> Big demographic for the show. Huge, you got yes. the, the coveted 100 to 120-year-old demographic. I'm glad we you guys are, got that. <laughs> we are cornering that market. That's right, and this episode is brought to you by Prunes. <laughs> so a hungry tramp played by charlie chaplin is mistaken for a pickpocket at a small circus show he's chased down by police and the real crook until he's inadvertently stumbles into the middle of the show the crowd loves him and he's a hit so the ringmaster gives him a tryout the tramp is terrible but the other property men quit after not being paid go figure so he's forced to hire the tramp anyway the tramp becomes a hit at the show due to his ineptitude which is a personal dream of mine. Get rich by being bad at stuff. Uh, he befriends the, the circus's horse rider, Myrna, who happens to be the ringmaster's stepdaughter. And she's told by a fortune teller that she will fall in love and marry a dark, handsome man who is near her now. Of course, with fortune tellers being super reliable, Myrna immediately concludes that she's in love with Rex, the newly hired tightrope walker, much to the tramp's dismay. The tramp gets depressed, does a bad job and is given one more chance after a series of poor performances. When Rex can't be found for a show, the ringmaster sends the tramp out and despite nearly falling to his death, the tramp succeeds with the stunt and the crowd is entertained. 
Unfortunately, he then catches the ringmaster slapping Myrna and proceeds to beat him up, which earns him a firing. Myrna runs away to join the tramp, but the tramp finds Rex and convinces him to marry Myrna. The trio return to the circus where a promise is made to treat Myrna better since she's now Rex's wife. Which is kind of weird. The circus leaves, but the tramp remains behind. Sad music plays as he picks himself up and jaunts away. Well done, well done. It is a short movie. This movie is... uh... This movie's only an hour and 10 minutes long, give or take. Is that about right? Yeah, 70 minutes is what it's listed. Which even even for Chaplin, that's pretty brief. A lot of his movies at least hit 80 or so. So this is, yeah, this is pretty short. <laughs> yeah, now this is a circus that I'm not sure that... It doesn't make circus life look glamorous anyway. Uh, you know, <laughs> you're getting beaten on a regular basis and you're starved uh, when you don't perform up to speed. Uh, this uh, This is not a glamorous version of the circus, is it, Peter? Uh, certainly not. And I can't, I, I imagine that's a pretty accurate depiction as well. I mean, especially back then when, um, you know, certainly like animal rights and things like that, that wasn't very, uh, very well known or prominent or anything like people just kind of let a lot of crazy stuff happen to not just animals, but, you know, humans and performers and stuff. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I wasn't there or anything, but I can imagine this isn't the, I, I can't imagine this is a very unfair way of uh, portraying the circus. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah, uni- unions weren't a big thing in 1928. <laughs> right, right, exactly. This is my third circus movie from around this time period, though, because we've got The Man Who Laughs, uh, Freaks, and The Circus, and they all are pretty down on what circus life would have been. So it it seems at least a trope of the time and probably accurate that it was underpaid, miserable. Yeah, that is interesting that sir, that it was also such a huge trope uh, in filmmaking at the time. I get, like the circus, it's kind of hard to picture that today. The circus was like such a huge thing that everybody went to see. Like nowadays, the I mean, circuses barely exist anymore, it seems like. And if, if they do, it's in a much different capacity and that's just we're just talking like the last few years when that all really when everything really got retrofitted when um, people became more concerned with animals and things like that so uh it's definitely a product of its time and it's it's so weird like to watch it even though i frequently forget that it's from 1928 i feel like it's a period piece made about a time long long past but no this this is a contemporary movie for its time. This like this was how things were back then. So. Yeah, it's interesting that the circus isn't treated with more enthusiasm because, I mean, my grandfather would tell me that, uh, you know, growing up in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania and stuff like that, when the circus came to town, like they actually came from the train and uh, you could see the animals paraded through the streets. Not necessarily, obviously, animal rights people probably would say that a lot of this wasn't great but the fact of the matter is it enthralled people like you didn't have a zoo in every town they were marching elephants down through the street and again there's this there's no tv there's it's quite an event to see these colorful faces and the music playing and so it's one of those things where as you mentioned peter today's time it's hard to fully appreciate the enthusiasm of the circus but it's really interesting that they chose not to show the joy of the circus. It, it is the uh, rougher behind the scenes part of it. And you're right, Chad, uh, those other movies also depicted it that way. Again, going through my grandfather's perception of the circus, it sure seems like for everybody else, it was such a happy thing. So it was a, it's an interesting 
other side of the coin on this one. Dumbo's kind of the same way too. Oh, certainly. Yeah. 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 That, that is interesting. You know, it's in 1928 film was a very young medium. So you almost have to wonder if this is a uh, filmmaker saying like, Hey, stop going to the circus, come to the movies like that. Like them trying to take the audiences away from the circus. Like that's why they're depicting it in such a negative light, uh, which is very clever. Um, and a hundred years later, it looks like their efforts have finally been uh, more or less uh, successful. Yeah. And abusing your daughter like was just like part of it, like from right off the bat, like he slapped his daughter and it's just like, whoa, OK, we're doing that then. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's OK. They shook hands at the end. So it's all good. Yeah. You're married now. I'll stop abusing you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so no. weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now that you've got a husband, the husband and stepdad are just going to shake hands and be cool with each other. That's that's what you're supposed to do in life. Now that you've done that, okay, you're we're okay with you now. You've you got married. You've, you've fulfilled your duties. Uh, Sorry for that. Uh, the, those two decades of physical abuse and and uh, starving you. <laughs> <laughs> right. He denies her food, which is like blew my mind. I mean, there's uh, that's a pretty common trope in the um, Charlie Chaplin movies is hunger. Like the, uh, he's hungry the girl in it is hungry and they find ways to help each other. But it's rare to, to see a girl's father actually deny her food. Like that's why she's hungry. That's, I mean, that's brutal. Like even, even for this, uh, for this genre here. It is, it is. And I, I was surprised to see there wasn't that harsh side treated towards the animals. Again, uh, I, again, my head goes to Dumbo on this one, but uh, it is one of those things where uh, I, they didn't exactly put up on the screen. No animals were harmed in the filming of this. It's like, uh, it's assumed, oh, we heard them. Yeah, just the way, just the way, uh, yeah, just like a circus, I guess. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, back then, no, I mean, nobody had any rights at all. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah, the, I wonder when that started, the no animals were harmed uh, thing. I feel like it was the 90s, but don't quote me on that. Like, I remember, I don't, I, I think Free Willy was one of those, like, ones that just kind of made me think, like, they were out there to, like, have this social message of, like, hey, whales in captivity, and, you know, they were, you know, that was a big part of the message, so first time I took note of it was probably in the early 90s. That's, yeah, you're probably, uh, that's probably right around the time, okay, so long, long, long after the circus, I guess. Uh, uh 1939, quote Russell on that. <laughs> oh, you did. You then you got the answer there. <laughs> yeah, apparently the line was drawn when a blindfolded horse was ridden off a cliff to its death, caused the American Humane Association, who are the trademark holders of No Animals Were Harmed, to uh, start putting that in films. Huh. Oh, well, well, still, still way after this movie. So yeah, I only missed it by about sixty years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I mean that line was absolutely drugged out of its mind to not eat charlie chaplin right how did they do that that is i mean yeah there are shots where the lion isn't in the shot but there are also i mean there's no cgi here there's no even real trick photography that exists yet so he is in that cage with that lion that must be yeah, um, yeah. so you think it's probably drugs that made that happen drugs and really well fed but i was, I was gonna hey. say it did get up and walk around in the later scenes i read that chaplin himself was just flat out nervous and he he's uh we'll get into this a little bit later but he's had to do several takes on that one i mean that's yeah. that's what he did i mean he was such a perfect he would do like tens to hundreds of takes for every scene ever so to put himself in that kind of dangerous situation and still be the the artist that he is and like make sure it's absolutely perfect is uh that's real dedication there so. nope one take with the lion that's all you get 
Well, never Oh, okay. I thought you did research. But, uh, oh, no. No, that's just Chad saying if he had to get in the cage with a lion. Yeah. Yeah, there's, that's a one shot. I don't care what happens to the film. <laughs> you you would have blown my mind if you had said, actually, no, Charlie Chapman only did one take. Right now, but, uh, oh, yeah. No. But yeah, like... yeah, it's like if, if you get that on film once, yeah, I'm, I'm out. I, I would probably give that same answer, Chad. <laughs> sometimes when I watch oh, movies from back in the 50s or 40s, I sometimes think people fall in love awfully fast. Then I went back and saw this movie from 1928, <laughs> and people fall in love even faster yeah yeah it's very it's a very dream scenario very um uh but i i hate this term but i think it applies pretty well as the manic pixie dream girl sort of thing where like a guy who's down on his luck and a, a girl just happens to really like him for no inexplicable for no explicable reasons so uh and there's a lot of that in charlie chaplin movies it's like every not to spoil other chaplin movies for you guys but that is kind of what happens in pretty much all of his features like he's he's down on his luck and uh really pretty girl who he falls in love with it just some for some reason really likes him and that's uh became became a term long after that but it clearly existed all the way back in the 20s as well so, so if you go farther and back in time do people fall in love even even faster like if you go back to like roman times like it's like there's a chariot on the horizon i think there's a lady in it i'm in love oh i sure hope so uh, <laughs> I'd root for that. Why not? <laughs> I wonder if somebody from back then got in a transport and came up to today's time uh, and then watched like we just watched Sleepless in Seattle and they were like, man, it takes a long time for these people to fall in love. <laughs> it really didn't. <laughs> it, really, it felt like eternity for me because the movie would not end. Oh, boo, I liked it. <laughs> that's that's funny. I just rewatched that movie for the first time in about 10 years a couple weeks ago as well. That's I love that you just did that. Um, oh, but why? Uh, yeah, it's, it's the same situation. Yeah, they they finally meet, see each other at the very end. Oh, yeah, we're, we're in love and we're going to get married. Yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, it's uh, movies are ex escapism. And uh, they certainly were escapism back in the 20s where all you had were movies and the circus and books. And that's it. So, yeah. You kind of wanted to believe that love was right around the corner in every situation. So. Now, Chad, why don't you give us a cast rundown? Because there's going to be so many familiar names that everybody's going to want to know all the familiar names in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially if you haven't seen any other Charlie Chaplin films, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Chaplin plays the tramp. Oh, he plays the tramp in this one? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Stunning. Uh, he, he branches out later, but yeah, that's pretty much his character for the first five-ish films. Al Ernest Garcia, who is our ringmaster and circus proprietor. And part-time abuser. Yeah. Uh, part-time. All right. <laughs> that, that may have been, been more than, than a part-time. Part <laughs> Myrna Kennedy. She is the proprietor's stepdaughter and also the circus rider. She's the love interest as well. Then we've got Harry Crocker, who is the tightrope walker Rex. Heartthrob for the time. Yeah, he was the tramp's rival. He's also a disgruntled property man and a clown, so he's doing triple duty here. And then we have Henry Bergman. I looked it up, no relation to Ingrid that I could find, but he plays an old clown. This is how he was credited. That's what I've got. <laughs> and... <laughs> Then Steve Murphy, who is the pickpocket who starts this whole thing with the tramp. I also like the animated Tiny Stafford who did the uh, head property man, the uh, guy who was uh, 
running the uh, property manager. Yeah, yeah. His credit was just property head. Yeah, old clown property head. What do you do with these? This is like all of the actors. Like Chad's not like stopping like a third of the way down because there aren't any important people. It's just this <laughs> is it. These people and uh, the lion and the monkeys. That's about it. Oh, and the cat. <laughs> so, you know, going into the cast here, obviously. Now, it's my understanding Chaplin uses some familiar faces from movie to movie. Peter, is there any overlap that you can tell us having seen a number of Chaplin films? You know, the interesting thing is the female love interests that he chooses, they all seem to look exactly if you would if you told me that it was the same actress in all of his movies i would believe you i would just have to like once i looked it up i'd be like oh no that's wrong but if you were just to tell me that yeah they look so similar from movie to movie so he clearly has a type um so he's like hitchcock before hitchcock we're a different type than hitchcock obviously but uh, hitchcock keeps going back and getting a certain type of lady yeah always the blondes with hitchcock always the short-haired brunettes with um with chaplin pretty much they all look like his second wife. It's really creepy. Uh, so. Chaplin or Hitchcock? Chaplin. <laughs> Chaplin. Yeah, he definitely had a type. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty It's pretty interesting. This uh, this lady only worked, uh, Myrna Kennedy only worked with her, in, uh, excuse me, only worked with him in this one movie. Not sure what the reason was. Usually he would work with them at least twice. But uh, you see the other folks, the... Um, uh, Al Ernest Garcia has, of course, worked with him. Well, I, sh- I say, of course, as everyone knows this, but um, but he was in Modern Times and City Lights, the two movies that uh, came right after this. And Harry Crocker was in the, well, he worked with him again in Limelight, a long, a much later talkie. That, That's his last one, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Chaplin's? Yeah. He did. No. He did a couple more after oh, that. Oh, did he? Um, okay. Yeah, he was. Uh, let's say it's his last good one. Uh, okay. I'm not a fan of what came after it, but uh, so yeah, that's. I mean, that's about it for him. And then there's one other. Uh, yeah, Henry Bergman. All uh, yeah, he's a very familiar face in Chaplin movies. He was in yeah, Modern Time, City Lights, and The Gold Rush. So and a lot of his shorts beforehand. So he yeah, they were clearly good working compadres there. So. Right. Yeah. Tiny Sanford and John Rand are also mainstays. Uh, Crocker was fired, though. He was Chaplin's assistant who did cameos with it, a disagreement on, I think it was actually City Lights, and he was fired. And they wound up reconciling. So that's why he, he goes away for a little while. But Myrna Kennedy got married and just retired. <laughs> yeah, she got, I, I imagine once um, once his leading lady gets married, he has no more use for them. Uh, so, But something about watching Chaplin movies, it almost doesn't matter who the other actors are because uh, he, if you if you read about what his directing style was, he basically plays all of those parts. He acts out those parts for those people and tells them, do it exactly the way I just showed you to do it. And, uh, and that's it. If you do it any differently, I will be mad and you're going to have to do it again. It's like, and all, again, and yeah, again, and again, and yeah. again, and, as yeah, as if, even if you do do it well, you're still going to have to do it 50 to a hundred more times. So it's uh very, you can call it what you will, but yeah, you, it, he's definitely an auteur in that way. He wants everything to be exactly the way, uh, it, which is probably why he kept working with the same people over and over. Like once he could, could trust that they would, uh, that they wouldn't have a problem with it that they would do what he says then yeah he'll he'll keep using them so he is very loyal to his actors because it's a common story a number of the actors and actresses that he worked with he continued to pay them a 
kind of a salary or like a like a ongoing fee for the for on the rest of the duration of their lives mm-hmm. as an architect i wish i could get that for each building that would be good so uh, hey, is the building still <laughs> going is it still up okay great i'll just take a little bit of a royalty off of that <laughs> good deal right um yeah i think uh yeah i, you know, I mean he was like one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. So I guess like not only could he afford it, but he was happy to just keep that crew going and keep people who he, who he could trust. So like if it meant that he didn't lose them, if they didn't go to another like director and stop working with Chaplin, I, I guess that was that was worth it for him. I, that's just me speculating, but that uh, it sounds about right considering how how much control he liked to have over all, every aspect of his productions. So. Now, Chad, what do you make of the Tramp character? This is your introduction to him, but what do you think about him? He was great. He was. You have to be animated in a uh, silent film. You have to exaggerate. But as soon as you see that walk up, you know it's Charlie Chaplin. We get that view from the back, but he just has such a distinct set of mannerisms. And you're just instantly drawn in and everything he does is exaggerated it's it's big i i love the tramp now peter as you mentioned the tramp is pretty consistent with even though he goes into different settings i think one of the things that maybe the circus gets buried a little bit is as i'm understanding it the tramp whether it be something like the kid or modern times the tramp's environment is in the city usually in a poverty-stricken kind of setting, as I'm kind of understanding it, where there's a struggle involved. Whereas the circus or Gold Rush pull him out of that environment and put him elsewhere. Certainly, yeah. It becomes a fish out of water in a way. This is probably the the least out of his elements that he becomes. Actually, no, he's a show business. I guess that's kind of a big deal there, uh, getting to be the circus, in the circus. But, but yeah, that... They do kind of all follow the same basic outline in, uh, you know, I, I don't want to you know, accuse them of just being repetitive or anything because I mean, it's a formula that works really well. But, yeah, always involving a girl who he uh, falls instantly in love with. And, uh, yeah, he's a guy like struggling down on his luck, but then like throws everything he has into impressing this girl and ends up in a much more fortunate position than what he's used to. And, um, yeah, it is kind of like it, it is kind of like the dream scenario for a lot of people. Um, and that's probably why he was so successful. A lot of people were saying, well, yeah, if this guy can become successful, can become like the star of a circus or uh, can pal around with rich millionaires in city lights or and, uh, in, in, you know, can um, suddenly go from being like uh, locked in a like a cabin in the middle of nowhere to being able to find the love of his life in the gold rush it's uh yeah it's probably something a lot of people really like gravitated towards and he you know he plays him in a really sympathetic way that you root for him you want him to succeed and you want him to become uh famous and rich and you want him to find love in a way too it's um even though he you know he's not a perfect guy he he has no problem with uh potentially stealing things that don't belong to him and like literally eating food that a baby has in its hands that's just that's a fantastic opening, uh, like early scene there, and uh, even adding jam or whatever, or, or it was a hot dog or something. I still can't quite figure out what that food item is that the baby has, but uh, whatever it is, the tramp's enjoying it. So, and you don't really 
I certainly don't have a problem with him doing that. He, I forgive him his trespasses, if you will. So. It's funny, Mary, Mary, this was her introduction to the character as well. And uh, she's like, he's eating that baby's food? I said, I think he's homeless and doesn't have a job. She goes, but he's eating a baby's food. I'm like, let's just see where this goes. <laughs> and like, uh, But uh, he had to work his way back into Mary's good grace. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, it's a, it's a baby. I guess that's a different scenario than us. But did did it work? Did he get back into her good grace? Yes. Yes. Uh, she found him more endearing once uh, he got pick or I got what? That's not pickpocketed when someone sticks money in your wallet and then you end up running from the police <laughs> in a funny uh, rundown. So it wasn't long before things uh, bounced back for her. So re- reverse pickpocket. Pock picketing? I don't know. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Now, as a director and a filmmaker, Chad, what are you thinking about Chaplin? Again, it's uh, it's your first exposure to him, but what do you think about him as a director? I mean, my goodness, the, the amount of control. We've already covered it a little bit, but I, I think control freak may be an understatement here <laughs> uh, from the fact that he's doing everything, getting all of his friends, kind of like Adam Sandler, but... Uh, <laughs> Producing it, starring in it, composing for it later on. I don't know how he had time to crank these things out. So Al Ernest Garcia is the Rob Schneider of his day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's honored to, to be known as that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chaplin was quite reclusive. And I, I was watching a documentary on him. And it was one of those things where he would work in a hard like dining room type wooden chair at a desk in a dark room with a clear story window overhead level that you couldn't see outside and he was sitting there trying to remove distraction from himself so that he could focus and perfect these things in his mind and write them down and uh, so that control that you're talking about starts at this almost obsessive way and he's he he leads a life of sad relationships uh, he moves on from wife to wife but uh, it's a pretty common thing of uh, you know when you're Charlie's kids he's not a very nice dad either he had plenty of them but uh, he's not a nice dad or husband work always came first for Charlie he made comedy a very hard-working job. He was borderline obsessed, but certainly dedicated, to say the least. Yeah, he actually talks about hiding from his wife to make this movie. Their relationship had deteriorated so much at that point. Yeah. So he doesn't, he doesn't even mention this movie in his autobiography because of all the issues that were going on at the time. Oh, yeah, I was pretty surprised to see making a comedy is a hard thing to do in the face of personal tragedy. And uh, during this, his second wife, Lita Gray, she's divorcing him. And so she writes a 42 page publication and it's dragging his sex life into the media with sensational claims about his affairs that he was having, which he was having. But um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, unfortunately for Charlie, after that hit, the IRS comes back and says you owe a million dollars in back taxes. Uh, so he's also the Nicolas Cage of his day. <laughs> um, no, I was going with Wesley Snipes. Okay. Uh, well, I, I was going to say, uh, I don't know if, uh, if like Nicolas Cage, he got out of it by being in literally every movie for two to three years straight. So uh, you can see Charlie <laughs> Chaplin in Bangkok Dangerous. 
But it gets worse, though. I mean, he spends a good deal of time in London to try and get away from the bad press that's coming his way. I mean, she wrote some nasty, scathing things, which I think he said some nasty, scathing things to her. At one point, he tells her that uh, she was selfish to not have an abortion with, for their second child when he's trying to uh, focus on making the circus. And man, it doesn't paint a very nice picture of Charlie. And his nice guy or funny guy persona is being broken down. And in addition to all that, his studio burns down which he had uh, again he had a lot of control uh, uh he had earned this right as a director and a filmmaker he had his own studio production facility he was the creator the writer he had the whole control chaplin seemed to have the golden ticket <laughs> it seemed like his whole life was crumbling around him at this time he had to complete the sad country song going on here his mom also passed away yeah Jeez. yeah <laughs> and she suffered from mental issues as well and which i mean which made it worse for charlie because he had this fear because his grandmother and his mother both had mental issues which was very poorly understood at the time uh and you know he said i don't know that i'm gonna live a full life without my mind's gonna be lost and so that was a storm cloud over his head the whole time so he went gray during all of this and uh it was it was a hard time for him so much so that he didn't even write about the circus in his biography or his autobiography that he did. So, I mean, to your point, Peter, maybe you don't hear about it that much because this isn't a time of life that Charlie likes to think about. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, Ch- Ch- Chaplin's personal life is something that I have kind of had to divorce myself from when, like, becoming, um, like, when I became such a fan of his. And then I, you know, as as I will for anyone who I become a big fan of, when I start looking at his personal life, it's like, okay, this guy may not have been the... Uh, he isn't the sympathetic character in life that he is in the movies, let's say. He, right. he does have some pretty um, pretty major skeletons in this closet. I, you know, I could also say, well, it was a different time. I, I don't know if that excuses it, but uh, it, it it was a different time. I could at least say I that. I don't think it went um, down that well even at that time, though. I mean, it didn't. No. It, didn't. Like, it really didn't. I mean, even at a young, like, he was a 19-year-old guy. He was, like, set, he had his heart set on a 15-year-old girl, and that never really got out of him he married uh he married a very young woman much younger than him that didn't turns out you know uh, he's this brilliant genius and dedicated to his work and you know she's a teenager and it didn't work out go figure well then he does it again with this lita gray character she was a child actor uh and when his movie um you know she plays an angel in the kid which is uh, one of his earliest movies. And uh, she, again, acts in another one of his movies, but she gets pregnant because, you know, um, you know that's what he's doing with all these young actresses. And uh, they get, they get, that's his second shotgun wedding because his first one, she got pregnant as well. And the child didn't make it, and it was a bad marriage. And this one, they had two children. They lived. Uh, as I mentioned, he wasn't a really nice dad, but uh, uh, was not a very nice dad. And uh, so yeah. it's a bad time. But I mean, he's he replaces his wife, Lita, Lita Gray, with another woman named Georgia Hale. He went from sleeping with Lita Gray to then sleeping with Georgia Hale. So he not only replaced her in the movie that she was in when she got pregnant, but also replaced her in the bedroom. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it clearly was frowned upon. He was 35 when he married 16 year old lita gray yeah yeah they had to go to mexico to get that done so yeah (laughs) chaplin was a sleazebag you will will not hear any argument from me on that he was there's there's another topper on that when his final wife who actually in fairness they were married for 35 years and he finally kind of got it right um although he's still a pretty lousy dad 
At age 54, he marries Una O'Neill uh, at shortly there after her 18th birthday. So, um, oh no, yeah, yeah. At least he waited till we waited till 18 this time. At least, yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't stop. <laughs> Oh boy! Yeah, yeah, he. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, and clearly, this is all fresh in your guys' mind. Like I said, like I I read this. I read about all this about five years ago. That just kind of divorced myself from it because it is it's it's rough stuff to have to have to know about. Uh, such yeah. a favorite artist of mine. But uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I I, it's, I appreciate you refreshing my memory on all this. No, Peter's right. It's it's kind of like a continued train wreck because I kept reading. I went and researched him and you start with, Oh no. And then it just keeps going and there are more. Oh no's. And by then it's like, Oh my goodness. Oh, Oh no. Honestly, once talkies come in, his career doesn't have his, I mean, obviously he's a silent movie guy and he helped create the art of pantomiming. He continues to make silent movies even after that to some degree, but he has a rough transition. He doesn't really thrive in the talking color movie format. And uh, his life doesn't go very well because he was kind of, he made some comments supporting Russian, uh, the Russians uh, during the war and kind of having a, a socialist I don't know. He didn't identify himself as a communist, but he definitely was a supporter of socialist ideals. That didn't play well either in subsequent years through the mid-century years. And he even got banned one of, one of his trips to England. Uh, he was banned and couldn't even come back to America. So uh, you're, you're right. It's just one fiasco and scandal after another. And so after he's done kind of being this international superstar of the silent screen, he's firmly financially secure i mean he's rich so don't feel too bad for him but um he's a man of scandal very true very true yeah (laughs) yeah and he had a good like 35 year run in hollywood where he uh basically did whatever he wanted and did a um was praised to high heaven so yeah and he's financially secure forever so he yeah he did fine um and then you know like like i said the honorary oscar that he got i think in the 70s or so where he was he was able to come back to america for that that was kind of like um a nice final farewell for the guy and uh so but yes he was not he was not the he was basically as bad as Hollywood would get at the time in a way. So obviously character wise, he isn't the best. And something that I, a lot of people will cite, you know, Buster Keaton was kind of the other big silent comedy star at the time. And Buster Keaton, I mean, a lot of his movies are, they have similar stories as well. It's a guy who's down on his luck, who's frequently trying to impress a girl, but uh, Buster Keaton actually did struggle. He actually did have uh, troubles. He wasn't like on top of the world the whole time. So you can kind of feel more of a sincerity in those those films, whereas Chaplin is like, you kind of know while watching, uh, especially his later films, that he is just a guy who is on top of the world. It's kind of hard to see him as the little tramp uh, in a way, unless you can, you know, you got to suspend that disbelief. You know? But he is a rags to riches story, so that's part of the inspiring part of him. He grew up very poor. His dad died. His mother had mental trouble, and uh, you know he and his brother are kind of like these uh, street kids. They were sitting there performing themselves, trying to cobble together money. If they're poor, they're you know they're dwelling in you know these English streets, and so the tramp 
is very much taken from his upbringing and the and the poor conditions that he grew up in and so that's that insecurity that and he was a deeply insecure man that's that thing that he had that chip on his shoulder that never really went away and that's where the tramp came out of and that's probably where those socialist tendencies came out of and his resentment towards capitalism which is super ironic cuz you're totally enjoying all of the um all of the best parts of capitalism uh, are, are, are right there for him so but it, it's that upbringing for him that i think that he created the tramp it's yeah it's a very conflicted um uh it, it's a very conflicting feelings there and a very conflicted persona that he has but uh, but yeah yeah it, you're right he is 100 percent rags to riches he basically he just like climbed up on stage one time just out of nowhere when his mother was uh, supposed to perform um i you know i'm sorry it's, i'm not entirely fresh on the story but it's it's depicted in the movie chaplin starring robert downey jr but that's how he uh, basically first got going and uh, really did come from like total poverty, workhouse, nothing, and uh, became uh, arguably the most famous person in the world for a, quite a long time. So. so all of this stuff is that's happening during the circus, which is like the beginning of the downfall for Chaplin in many ways. Filming took 11 months, and I think movies were made <laughs> faster back then. So uh, <laughs> that is bad. And uh, he had a nervous breakdown. He, he had to shut it down for a while. So there's, this is a long time after uh there's a long time between this and his next movie as well so yeah but then, i mean the next movie city lights i think he spent two years working on that one so it's like uh it pretty he kept the pattern going i guess for the long um the long shooting periods because uh so uh, I mean, he still clearly did have a lot of creative freedom even from this point going even though he was yeah his his personal setbacks and everything but he still had plenty several more hits after this so Certainly, certainly. And uh, there's a clip from the 1928 premiere of this movie, which uh, can be found on bonus DVDs of people out there who have it, that uh, it's funny. There was this definitive evidence of time travel <laughs> in a scene. There's a woman walking past a zebra, and she appears to be talking on a cell phone. And this was kind of a fun debate that people were uh, talking about. It turns out, however, that this cell phone is actually a super ghetto giant brick of a 1924 Siemens hearing aid device. I heard about, you know, I've yet to spot that in the actual movie, but um, uh, you know, I actually, the way I watched it this time was a uh, brand new spiffy uh, Criterion Blu-ray, which I uh, had not had not watched yet. And uh, yeah, the movie looks terrific, but I haven't watched any of the special features yet. I assume that's there. Um, <laughs> but uh, did you spot it in the actual movie, this shot? I, I looked for it, to be honest with you, uh, and I did not personally see it, but uh, it, it's it's part of the urban legend of the uh, movie. So it's kind of like one of those, like the hanging little person in the in the uh, Wizard of Oz or whatever in the background. Uh, <laughs> right. Is that a cell? Is that a is that a cell phone? And uh, gosh, that's a fun thing to try and sneak a definitive proof of uh, time travel in there. I'd like to see something like that painted in Da Vinci's paintings or something like that. <laughs> I love, I, boy, definitive proof of time travel. <laughs> that, that is a, that's a leap, but yeah, it's fun. It's fun nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the Big Bang Theory when the, it's an early one. I think when they talk about like when Sheldon and uh, uh, Leonard. Yeah, when, when Sheldon and Leonard first meet, uh, they say, we agree when the room contract. And he's like, if either one of us uh, solves time travel, we agree to come back to this moment in time. And they, just, they sit there and like Sheldon's like, oh. I really thought I would have had that beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I love time travel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish it were real. Now, Chad, we talked about this feeling like a period of peace, 
it feels that way because it's so incredibly accurate because it's of its time. What does it feel like to get into this time capsule and come back to 1928? It, you mentioned it earlier of the circus being a bigger event. It was interesting to see you know, there aren't very many animals that we saw. We see monkeys. Uh, we see a few horses and the lion in the cage, but those aren't really center stage. But people are lining up for these clowns that really aren't very entertaining they, they get booed at one point but they're still showing up it felt like certainly an earlier time where this was a newer attraction uh it was something for the whole community to do it, it felt to me about 1920s great depression-esque era it's one of those things where i, I to your point i would have wanted more vibrancy i wanted to see the joy of the circus like when charlie does the tightrope scene there's a sense of fun to it because most of the time um he's a clown and he doesn't know he's a clown he doesn't know he's the joke you like you to your point i guess this was a bad circus and people weren't rooting for it but we don't see the circus performing clicking on high gear like when rex comes in and stuff like that maybe this is just the marx brothers in me uh you know because like <laughs> they'll take a break from being really funny to play a song and to put you in the moment of the time and stuff like that there's part of me that just kind of wants to sit back and enjoy the circus being executed well yeah i mean the circus was still kind of a relatively new concept barnum didn't get into the really the circus that we know until 1880s something like that so maybe 30 40 years but they were just acquiring animals fairly recently by the time of this film so it it may not have the same pageantry that we who grew up in the 80s and 90s saw these elephants and people riding on top of them and doing tricks and everything else it was just here's a guy walking on a rope with monkeys I don't know. Before this, they had Zac Efron and Hugh Jackman singing in Center, Center, Center Ring. Oh, who can forget that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I did not know that. I did not know that animals were relatively new at the time. Animals seemed like a big part of the attraction to me. I mean, as a kid, these were the parts that excited me the most. Yeah, I absolutely hated the clowns. I wasn't someone that was terrified of them. I just found them really boring and not entertaining so i'm i'm with the audience here it's like yes boo the clowns they're not fun <laughs> i also like the acrobats and the Anna. i did like the acrobats too <laughs> i like clowns when they're not wearing makeup i feel like that i feel like charlie chaplin in a lot of ways is a clown who just doesn't have the makeup on and uh that's and i feel like a lot of silent film stars are that way like as long as long as they don't have the creepy makeup but like, a lot of the a lot of the technique that they employ can be pretty admirable for me at least <laughs> To that point, though, he doesn't. The, the man, Charles Chaplin, looks nothing like the tramp. And he does have a fair bit of makeup on. I mean, when you see a picture of him, he doesn't have that mustache. His hair is a lot lighter and combed in a very, very different fashion. Um, obviously, he's not a hobo. There's a certain degree of this look that he transforms himself into through this high contrast makeup. I think it's done partially to accentuate the bigness of his eyes and to, again, go high contrast that makes him more animated and um, your eyes just instantly go to him uh, as well with this wardrobe too. But to your point, Peter, I, 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 Charlie doesn't look anything like him, like the tramp in real life. In fact, uh, there's a really funny story where Charlie, they, Charlie was such a hit. They had like Charlie Chaplin lookalike contests <laughs> and Charlie, the man himself goes into this contest in San Francisco 
and he doesn't win. He comes in third. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah, that was something interesting. Like Charlie Chaplin, biggest movie star in the world, but he could walk uh, walk down the street and nobody would recognize him because he looked so different from his uh, trademark character, which I I loved. That's pretty funny as well. And yeah, I mean by makeup, I mean just like not like super like the stereotypical clown makeup, but but yeah, he does make himself up. Uh, it both to become the character and also because, you know, silent films, you need to accentuate your features in a way that uh, you don't necessarily have to with um, what sound came along. But uh, but yeah, it's um, it is pretty interesting how how much he changes from the way you're used to him looking. If, if you just see him as uh, as a guy like in his later films and like Limelight and um, King of New York, where he's not playing the tramp anymore and he doesn't have the mustache. It's it, you. It, he's unrecognizable. You do not think that that's the same person that you knew in all these silent movies. So. No, uh, exactly. Chad, what do you think about the wardrobe, like the, the classic Charlie Chaplin look that everybody was trying to look like? I think the jacket with the tails is just the signature part of that look the cane's a great addition to the bowler bowler hat uh always makes me think of odd job (laughs) yes me too everything else like the wardrobe i didn't find particularly spectacular in a film called the circus but the tramp's wardrobe even though it's reused from every one of his films is just so iconic it's it's interesting he has this really tiny tiny jacket that makes his top look small and pushes his shoulders in and makes him, again, accentuates the smallness on top, but then he wears these really baggy pants. It's, again, high contrast. His his face has this high contrast, and uh, he's got these really long, pointy kind of shoes that curl up, and he walks in such a way. It, it's, it, it is influenced from, like, this English hobo that apparently in his time growing up where people would wear a tie, even though they were dirty, and it was discarded, like, clothes, there was the sense of even though you're homeless to try and have a sense of dignity again it's from that world of poor that poor world that he's taken this character to kind of be this underdog every every man that people connected with and you know what blew my mind that i didn't hear about until a couple of years after i had really like became become a fan of chaplin and and the character the walk that he has the kind of like uh kind of like waddling sort of thing like where that comes from the reason why he does that is because the shoes he's wearing the soles are all torn up so it's painful on his feet to wear those shoes they're not like smooth and comfortable and that's that's what he's doing he's limping in that way and i just i just just that kind of touch that makes it also like super funny and endearing is just it's just so so beautifully authentic i love it <laughs> My favorite use of the cane was if somebody had been knocked out and was sitting in front of the uh, circus tent and he was trying to get up to see through a hole. And so he just pulls this guy's knocked out body over just a little bit to the side and then stands on the guy. <laughs> I just, like, there's something very cartoonish in Looney Tunes about that. To, to, when, when Chad said, I'm thinking Looney Tunes, I was like, that's the first thing that pops in my mind right away. <laughs> and with that, without even flinching, he's just like, oh, here's here's a solution. He just pulls the guy over. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> What do you think about the early music in this, Chad? It's like, oh, I'm I'm not expecting spoken word as far as the the initial song. Now the, it turns out that was put in later on, but then I see composed by Charlie Chaplin. I'm like, oh my goodness, were you just broke or not trust? Apparently, not trusting anyone else to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, total driver mentality. Yeah, I I like the the music quite a bit. Uh, there was one particular scene where they're in this merry-go-round type chase 
and I thought the music was uh, particularly energetic, and it was just delightful and playful. It was a lot of fun. In a silent movie, music matters perhaps even more. Peter, what did you think about the music? Oh, it's great. I mean, same deal for me. I did not realize that uh, the opening had been changed. Like, when I when I first watched it on Hulu, I did not realize that the opening had been changed to include this uh, vocal performance from a uh, 1969-era Charlie Chaplin um, singing that yeah, singing that song. And I mean, I'm pretty sure, uh, maybe, maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong, this does come from the era where uh movies just exist silent movies just existed silently and whatever the movie theater did to add the soundtrack was whatever the movie theater did but this version that we watch now was the version in 1969 that chaplin actually came up with himself like added his own music to it including the of course the the song at the beginning so uh i think i it definitely lends an extra authenticity to it that um you may not have gotten if you had watched it uh when you know, before Chaplin actually added that himself. So, yeah, you're right. They they would have live orchestras to to play along with the movies, but otherwise, you got what you got. Later, Chaplin does get the benefit of synchronized music, but you're right, Peter. This is not that later Chaplin. This is to Chad's point. They're just they're playing music with it. But uh, I'm glad in '69 they went back and added that. And it also explains something because during the singing it was like like music by Charlie Chaplin. I'm sitting there going like that sounds like a much older, large like larger man. Like <laughs> this doesn't that voice does not line up to that person. And that kept bugging me. And then later on, I also found out what you guys found. I was like, it's like, oh, yep, it all it all lines up. Yeah, but, yeah. This this was the last one too. His next one, City Lights, was like that was in the talkie era. So he was able to composed the music himself and added himself. So everyone who saw that movie in theaters saw the same version of the music in the movie. So it, um, but yeah, this was the last one like this where it was whatever you got, we got what you got. So. I, I really liked the inclusion of blue skies as well at the very end of the film. This is the second movie where we're going to be talking about the jazz singer, uh, actually with the same podcast crew here. Oh yeah. I was going to say the, after all talking about the silent movie, going and doing Singing in the Rain is actually a really good follow-up to this because they, they transitioned from talkies, uh, yeah. to, or two talkies from silent movies. That's so yeah. true, yeah. But uh, yeah, Blue Skies was heavily featured and made famous in The Jazz Singer, and Chaplin redid it. And he did it in this slower, kind of morose, funeral dirge-type playthrough at the very end of the film. And it was kind of a fun illusion as long as you know the history the jazz singer had just come out and he added this in four days after the jazz singer came out it was kind of a, a nod to the jazz singer but also yeah my time might be on borrowed time at this point what i do may be on borrowed time because when he talks he's like i can't stand it <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's interesting that he would feel that way too because i mean for my money he does his best work in his next three movies and i think his most uh most enduring work in his next three movies so if he's if he thinks he's living on borrowed time i i think history has shown that no his, his best work was still ahead of him so yeah so true uh you know uh peter one of the things i always get a kick out of is sometimes you guys do these shout outs and i think it's funny uh ray has very different music taste than you and so <laughs> ray, ray will come in and be like have you heard the new harry styles album 
and uh, you know Peter is more of a you know a U2 REM kind of I'm, am I getting this right you're more like an alternative fan that's those are my two favorite bands right there you yes, pretty much yeah, them. okay <laughs> and so it's it's always funny to hear like Ray be like have you heard the new Selena Gomez song and like and Peter's like no tell me more about that <laughs> like selena gomez you mean the actress from spring breakers what i don't know um, yeah it's, yeah you know, right. i always get a kick i always get a kick out of that <laughs> yeah we we definitely have differing music tastes without question um, uh but um yeah he tries i side with you on rat race i side with you on music so there you go oh i appreciate that yes thank you um, all right guys you want to hand out some awards here favorite time yeah let's do it all right, Peter, I think I know who your MVP is, but why don't you tell us? I mean, how can you choose anyone else? It's um, it's the monkey who bites his nose. That's uh, no, I mean, Charlie Chaplin. Come on. He is the he's the guy. Yes, he is, you know, not the not the down on his luck, sympathetic character in life that he is in the movies. But his work here is just masterful. I don't I don't want to end without also mentioning the myth of mirror chase, which is just like. It, my jaw dropped during the mirror chase scene that in that um crazy fun house and uh, like the the coordination the um the choreography and the way that's directed so you somehow don't see the camera it's i mean acting directing story-wise charlie chaplin just kills it in this movie and it's not even anywhere near his best movie so yeah there, there may have never been a bigger gap between mvp and second, <laughs> second prize <laughs> for mvp chad who's your mvp same same i i can't imagine picking anything else just because how central he was to this movie uh, even little things like before the mirror scene when he's imitating uh, like a cuckoo clock worker and just an animatronic and it was believable it was the craziest thing it's like he looks like one of those figures on a swiss clock he just nails things that seem simple but would just be you can't have some random person go in and do what he does so yeah charlie chaplin all right best supporting actor perhaps a little harder who is your best supporting Peter. Okay, yeah. So I guess Myrna Kennedy, as as what they say, his stepdaughter dash a circus writer. Um, she she's terrific. She has a real presence. You can see why the tramp would be um, would be taken by her, even though we don't get to learn that much from her. She becomes like uh, very very sympathetic and does a great job and is a good match for him. She he she uh elevates the movie and elevates him very well. It's uh she's terrific. Yeah. Chad in this extensively long cast list, who's your <laughs> best supporting? Going with the child abuser Al Ernest Garcia, not for his abusing, but he he was a good foil to the tramp's buffoonery. He's the straight man who's just constantly exasperated but finds himself forced to deal with the tramp and i like that dynamic i didn't like the beating your stepdaughter part but everything else yeah i'm i'm gonna go with you too the rob schneider of his day (laughs) al Ernest garcia (laughs) 
I really enjoyed the scene where uh, they have the foam buckets and they're painting each other's faces and the chairs being pulled out from under him as he's trying to get him to be a clown. Yes. I, really think he, I think he really shines as part of the action in this. And I wish he had uh, gotten involved a little more with uh, some of the mayhem because you're right. He's a very good straight man. And I think Chaplin and his calamity plays off well with this. There's another straight man character with the magician later, but I, I like Alan Garcia as my straight man. So I'm going to go with him as well. That move is so smooth, too. He just he pulls the chair and the guy just follows. He does it again. And it, it seems like it doesn't seem forced. It seems like exactly what the characters would do in that position. And it's just it's just gold right there. Hidden gem, Peter. I think the pickpocket does a great job of matching him. And uh, boy, the pickpocket or the policeman, I could pretty much choose either of them uh, because of that magnificent chase scene, which, you know, it. it you're always looking at Chaplin. Chaplin is the focus, but the pickpocket adds so much to it as well. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and add, add, go ahead and say him because it's uh, it sets the tone for the movie beautifully. And uh, so the pickpocket is played by Steve Murphy. Yes, yes, Steve Murphy. <laughs> and uh, Chad, uh, who how's who's your hidden gem? I'm picking a horse. <laughs> There's this little horse that chases the tramp, and it happens a lot. But you know what? It never got old. <laughs> so that that horse is my underappreciated cast. But I'll also give a shout out to the animal trainer trainers and handlers because they did a remarkable job. Uh, my gem is actually going to be the baby early on. I got a huge kick out of that, yeah. uh, even though Mary didn't appreciate it as much. Uh, you know, uh, I, I thought that that went well. And, you know, given how many times Charlie makes you reshoot dealing with a young child, it does make me wonder, how many times did they shoot that? <laughs> probably quite a few. He probably was like, uh, yeah, it doesn't look like he, it looks like he swallows that food. So he probably had to eat a lot of whatever that was on that day. And um, uh, probably had to go to the hospital like he did when he had to eat the shoe in the gold rush. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I read about that. Now, I haven't seen Gold Rush, but I did read where he and this other supporting actor eat a shoe, mm-hmm. and they make it do it for all day long, and they're eating licorice that looks like leather, and they both have horrendous diarrhea because licorice <laughs> is kind of a laxative. And so, like, they're sitting there, like, eating it, eating it, eating it, and then, like, going to the bathroom with horrible diarrhea and then coming back out and then doing it again. Now, Chaplin's <laughs> kind of doing this to himself, but I did find myself going, like, Man, that sucks to be the supporting actor. It was just like, <laughs> all right, Joe, we're going to do this again. Oh, uh, yeah, poor guy. But uh, what, as, hey, as we established, he paid him well. So that's, uh, at least he got that. That's true for life. So my hidden gem's the same as yours, Peter, with Steve Murphy, the pickpocket, because, man, that, that he was so animated. It just, it just great job. You got to be large and large in life to stand out in the silent movie, and he does that. So now. Recast, this is the part of the show where we tend to say, who would you like to replace and who would you put in their spot? This is a pretty hard task to do for back then. So we're going to like loosen up our our uh, rules on this a little bit. So if you had to cast somebody from today in a role, who would you recast and who would you put in their place? I would love the idea of seeing Jim Carrey play the ch- a Tramp character. Maybe he's a little bit older than Chaplin was at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he, he definitely is older than Chaplin was at the time. But I would like to see Jim Carrey do a silent movie or something like this because if he, he is so animated. He has Physical, such a yeah. Yeah, and such a face for... Um, expressions and everything so that would be that would be interesting i'd like to see that but uh chad if you if you had to recast the tramp with somebody from today who would you want hmm that's that's a different question i actually answered the 
1928 equivalent. Did you really? Uh, did you? I I did. I I picked on Rex a little bit. I don't really have a problem with Rex, but uh, Conrad Veidt, who plays the man who laughs. Wow, you you stayed to the rules on this one. Good for you. I did. Conrad has that circus performer acting experience, and uh, the man who laughs actually came out the same year. In reality, it couldn't happen, but uh, that's that's my cast member pick. You never know. You can do two movies at once. I he, mean, uh, he's actually a handsome guy. He's he doesn't look like the Joker in real life. But uh, as far as replacing the Tramp, I really I liked the documentary of Robert Downey Jr. I thought he did a very good job. Oh, so you've seen that okay. movie? Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I'm gonna kind of play it in between the rules, I guess. I also replaced Rex the Tightrope Walker, and if I had to do it with somebody from today, I would go with Ansel Elgort if I could put him in a time machine and send him back there. Seems like he could be uh, a tightrope walker. But if I were to put somebody in the role of the Tramp, I'd like to see what Bill Hader could do with that. Ooh, that'd be interesting. interesting. Yeah. He's very physically gifted. And I'd be curious to see if you gave him the bowler hat and the uh, the mustache and all that stuff to see what, what would Bill be able to do with that. So he'd be a much taller tramp because the tramp's kind of a little guy. <laughs> I'd lo- I could see that. I would love to see that. Oh, man. Yeah. This, you know what? I, I feel like that Chaplin movie with Robert Downey Jr., they didn't quite get it. I think it's like, I, I think it's an OK movie, but I would love to see a really, really great Charlie Chaplin biopic. And uh, yeah, maybe Bill Hader. He could. That'd be a candidate for me. As long as they uh, focus on the on-screen performance, because I don't want to see Bill Hader be a total jerk (laughs) for the rest of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting how they kind of gloss over that. They reference it, but they kind of make it a weird madcap situation and not really uh, like getting into the nitty gritty of it, at least as far as I... And that was good move. At least, yeah. Good move. Hating the protagonist is always a rough go for a movie. So, (laughs) um, Best shot of the movie, Peter. I, uh, this, uh, you know what, I, I kind of uh, tipped my hand earlier. The shot with, in the mirrors, the funhouse mirror shot, I think that is, uh, I, I was really taken with that this time around. I had kind of forgotten about that before, but the fact that they make it so, so much that you, even the viewer doesn't really know who the real chaplain is or like what's a reflection and what's not, even though like I kept watching it trying to, it's it stayed on screen for such a long time and i just kept getting fooled and the fact that the camera doesn't even get picked up by the mirror like how they positioned it in such a way and you expect the cop to catch him and he doesn't catch him he like hits his head on the mirror it's a, and then they come back to it and manage to go even further with it they come back to the mirror of, like a couple minutes later so yeah that really like blew my mind i know it's probably maybe that seems a little simple compared to what he what chaplin does with the tightrope later on and a bunch of other things but i uh i was really taken by that in this go around so. no that's good cinematography to not have your camera shot yeah jeff what about you best shot i'm with peter my initial thought was how difficult it must have been to avoid the camera being in that shot you get all those reflections of charlie and the pickpocket and I was astonished. It was it was a great, great shot. Kudos to them. Yeah. You know, another one that really struck me as artistic, unexpected, and I didn't know that he could even do this back then, 
There's a scene where Charlie first encounters Rex and he's angry and jealous of him and he daydreams and he has another negative translucent image of himself come out <laughs> like it's like a double filming and he gets out and he kicks the tightrope walker in his in his subconscious and it was such a creative thing that again I did not expect that at all. So kudos to the mirror too. But this this scene where he's like daydreaming and taking it out on Rex, I, I was surprised. Go see uh, 1922's The Phantom Carriage. Okay. It's a Swedish horror film, but they, they did a lot of that of the ghostly carriage that would ride up and interact with people. Oh, so this isn't as, as groundbreaking as I thought it was. But nevertheless, I, not being familiar with this era of film, just saw that and had my mind blown yeah it was used to great effect it was a that was a fantastic pick and actually if you watch the kid from uh chaplin's 1921 movie he does something kind of similar in that as well so that was um yeah it, it might be just as simple as um I, you know, I know nothing about filmmaker for about cinematography. I probably shouldn't speculate, but uh, yeah, maybe they just like layered one shot on top of the other somehow. But yeah, it is it is kind of surprising that uh, they were able to do that when so many other things weren't able to be done back then. So. Right, like today it would be super easy, and computers and all that stuff, and it, it it diminishes. But when I I mentioned this like on the Wizard of Oz episode, when you see what they do and it looks as good as it does even though it's not perfect, even if it looks as good as it does, and you think these guys had to do this without computers to figure out how to do this with film and exposures, and it's just massive appreciation for that. Yeah, it's so much more tangible in a way. It's like you you feel the effort right there behind it. So, yeah, it's, it's for wonderful. Sure. Okay. What's your favorite scene in the movie, Peter? Well, I think the tightrope walk, tightrope, walk wow i did not expect that to be so hard hard to say um i you gotta hand it to him um i i don't know if we've mentioned this but that he had this as as per usual he did like 50 to 100 takes for it like finally finally got it right you know he had it he probably had a net under him he uh did but he you know trained like crazy to get this to happen and they finally got it right after like like we said the circus took forever to make with like extremely stress inducing and they went to edit it and the there was a giant scratch in the print so they had to do it all over again and uh, according to chaplin what they shot before was not as good as what ended up in the movie so as but hey what ended up in the movie is still pretty amazing and legendary and the fact that he he did that he did that and learned how to do that for the sake of telling this story is uh super admirable and um yeah i'm totally all in on the tightrope walk yeah yeah absolutely chad what is your best scene my scene is also going to involve mischievous animals but i'm going with the lion cage scene and particularly when this little dog starts barking and the lion's sleeping and charlie's trying to get it to knock it off and he sticks out his leg and or I think it was his arm. Yeah, it was his arm, his leg. The dog latches onto his leg and he's trying to shake it off and the dog's just going absolutely bananas. <laughs> and the lion just kind of rolls over, goes back to sleep. Then Charlie goes to pet it and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, no. The lion roars and he jumps up a pole. This entire scene, there were some great acrobatics on the pole and then just the comedy is just layer on layer. 
the very end, there's this small little kitten to cap off the scene. And the kitten meows, and it scares him after this huge lion that he was about to pet. So it's just a great layering of comedy. So for my best scene, this movie peaks early. I love the pickpocket scene, the sequence with him having the wallet stuck in his pocket and he shouldn't have, the other guy going back for it and then pursuing each other, them running, and then they realize they're running in parallel with each other. They go into the funhouse. They come out into, like your point, Chad, they're part of this animatronic kind of display on this ship. And like he's doing these mechanical motions and it's just, it's a... it, there's a lot of really great stuff on there. So it peaks really early uh, for me, but I, I, I really enjoyed this scene and a um, lot of good moments within this scene. The, the guy falling over after being repeatedly bonked on the head <laughs> to yeah. break the cover. Yeah. yeah. You have to wonder if that's the tramp's plan. Like he, he does the bonking on the head thing because he knows that that will eventually knock the guy out and he'll be okay. Like I, that's just so uh, just, yeah, it's fantastic. And the way the tramp moves in that moment, you, I could swear he's like standing on a turntable or something, but no, he, he is actually using his body to look like he is like turning to the left in a perfectly like coordinated manner. It's it. And it's just, it's incredible. Peter, if you could change one thing in the circus, what would it be? I would like to see more scenes between between the tramp and the girl. I would like to see a little bit more development there and bring a little bit more humanity out of it. That's if I were to say there's one thing lacking about the circus compared to some of his other movies, I feel like there's not quite enough development in that relationship, even though, yeah, it is supposed to be like this really fast, like really quick, like falling in love situation. But but the uh, his other movies do that, too. And I, I believe it a little more in his other movies. I think this, this could have used a little more of that. And, uh, you know, that's that's probably where that it's only 72 minutes. That's probably where that extra 10 minutes went. Um, so, yeah, that's. That's probably where I'm at with that. Good choice. Uh, now, Chad, what would your change one thing be? Even though the scene was really great, it featured capuchin monkeys and undressing the tramp on a high wire, I still think the final trapeze scene went on a bit too long for my taste. So just just some trimming there. I, I felt like it went on for seven, eight minutes, something like that, and it just needed condensed a little Okay, and so mine is going to be kind of uh, along the lines of what Peter said. I think we need to become better acquainted with Rex, the tightrope walker. We need to like him because he's part of the happy ending or the kind of happy ending. The ending had both Mary and I sitting there going like, wait, what? And, um, <laughs> you, you know, you as Peter pointed out, the tramp's got to move on to his next adventure. He can't come out on top and get the girl and go on. But uh, we don't really like Rex. I mean, in one, like we mentioned, like there's this ghost image of him kicking him. And we don't really like him. There's nothing wrong that he does per se. Uh, we don't know where he goes missing on his job, and we don't see a lot of chemistry between the two of them other than, oh, you're a girl, you have girl parts, I'm a guy, I have guy parts, we must love each other. So, mm, yeah. you know, I, I'd like to see some something, like maybe Rex does something for her, makes her like him and give him some redeeming qualities. To your point, Peter, that human dimension, which is apparently a trademark of Chaplin's work. I don't think we really see it here, and it makes the ending kind of make me scratch my head and go, what is this ending? That was a weird thing that it was never explained where Rex was. Day drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. 
I mean, the tramp is just such the focus. Like they, they don't. I guess he doesn't want to spend a lot of time with the other characters. He just wants it to be about his journey. And yeah, if the tramp can't come out on top, it it just gets to a point where he it kind of you know Ray and I just talked about the movie Roxanne, and I think it's just kind of thing like he he just cares so much for this woman, he just wants her to be happy, and he decides that being with Rex is what will make her happiest. Whether he's right or not, I guess is uh. I guess is we you know that can be debated, but uh, he he sees Rex and decides that they should be together, and so he's going to help her do that. Just like he he does everything that he can to help his other female um, love interests in his movies, and um, yeah, it's a it's a sad, bittersweet, bittersweet ending. But that's that's him, like walking off into the distance with that Irish iris focus and uh, the way a lot of his movies end. And it's um, yeah, it's it's his trademark. Now, this is a hard thing to do with a movie like this, but let's try and do it anyway. What's your best quote of the movie, Peter? Yeah, I can't even really say best quote. Did you guys come up with a best quote? I mean, I forced myself to, but Chad, did you did you come up with anything? I did. Yes. There's a great quip from the ringmaster when he's talking about uh, talking to one of the property men, sending the tramp up, do the tightrope routine, and the guy says he'll kill himself. And the property manager responds with that's all right i have him insured (laughs) yeah that's a good one (laughs) that is a good one i just simply liked when they were booing the other clowns and stuff like that they wanted to see the tramp who's not really part of the act brought back on they said bring on the funny man Uh, if you don't have a best quote peter i do not hold it against you yeah i gotta i gotta sit this one out unfortunately (laughs) it's it's a square peg in a round hole we're trying to make it fit chad beat it into submission the best though (laughs) that was pretty good yeah you know that that is a line that definitely stuck in my head as well so yeah that's a good one (laughs) now peter where can the listeners hear you again Oh, folks, you can always hear me every week on uh, on Retro Reviews, which, yeah, it, uh, we talk about movies from 1980 to 2010. It's uh, yeah available pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. If you use Stitcher, Podbean, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Spotify, it's all over the place. So, yeah, Retro Reviews, I do it with uh, my co-host Ray Castillo Jr. And, yeah, hope hope you guys give us a listen. We It's a great companion piece for Retro Movie Roundtable. So, you know, if you like one, you'll like the other i think they're different too so it's not like even if you see the same movie they're handled in a different way on a five-star scale half-star intervals what would you rate the circus peter the circus i would give four and a half out of five stars i'm uh yeah like like i said i'm a huge i'm a big chaplain head this isn't my favorite it's definitely it's not my least favorite it's about the middle as far as chaplain's uh directing features go and um yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's one that seems, like I said, kind of been forgotten over the years. And I think it deserves to be held in uh, perfectly high esteem right next to you know, City Lights and Modern Times. So. Nice. And Chad, what would you rate The Circus? I'm going to go four and a half as well. I think you hit the crux of what's keeping it from being a five. The, the whole Rex storyline is just resolved and wrapped up very quickly and kind of odd but otherwise it's a charming fun movie that i had a great time with i really struggled with how to rate this one like i said it almost felt like i didn't watch a movie for retro movie roundtable in the sense that like as we know cinema today it's just such a different cinematic experience for me (laughs) and this whole silent movie world is very different for me for instance i had seen metropolis and i love it and it's still my favorite silent movie but i mean 
everything else that I've seen in the silent movie world, I, I, they're short and there's a limited depth that you can get in with this. So uh, with the circus, some of my gripes about I didn't feel that connection to the characters. And the other thing was, I mentioned this earlier, I feel like we peaked early. Like I really, really thought like we were high energy and I was, I even kind of was like, oh man, we're in great shape here. This is, this is off to a fantastic start. And I felt like we hit some lulls along the way and I didn't feel like the conclusion picked it up in the end for me. So we're, we're right when I needed some energy, uh, it left me scratching my head and uh, a little bit unfulfilled. So I, I gave it a 3.5 and I feel bad for doing that because I've had enjoyed studying the history of this. I, am I a bad person? <laughs> yes. No, you're not a bad person. Uh, no, I, I totally get that. That's totally fair. And, uh, you know, on, honestly, I am loving that you both kind of, I, I, I was get able to inadvertently introduce you to a Charlie Chaplin features. I hope this convinces you to watch more because I think, uh, like I said, he's done better work. I think if you watch some of his others that they might actually rectify your, um, your qualms with this one, which is why I, I gave it four and a half. I felt like there are plenty of others I would give five to, which, uh, definitely um uh fill those gaps that you were mentioning so i'm intrigued to move on to in particular the kid and the gold rusher two that have caught my eye that i think i would like to move on to next they're great yeah the two that came before this so yeah those uh, um you can pretty much go in order with those so yeah all right well chad do you want to help me pick a movie for next time i'm excited all right uh, we're going to go old, but not actually, that's going to be uh, brand spanking new compared to this. But uh... <laughs> so we've got three Audrey Hepburn movies here for today. Chad, are you ready for these? Uh, option number one, Sabrina from 1944, a playboy becomes interested in the daughter of his family chauffeur, but his more serious brother, who would be the better man for her? Option two, Charade from 1963. Romance and suspense ensue in Paris as a woman is pursued by several men who want a fortune for her murdered husband had stolen. Who can she trust? Option three, Roman Holiday from 1953. Bored and sheltered princess escapes her guardians and falls in love with a newsman in Rome. I've never seen a Catherine Hepburn movie. Mm, so Not quite. <laughs> or uh, Audrey. 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 Yeah. yeah, I knew I'd messed that up. There you go. I've never seen either of their movies, actually. But yeah, so Gregory Peck, Audrey Hepburn. I want to see Roman Holiday. Uh, so we're ready to introduce ourselves to Audrey Hepburn and Roman Holiday from 1953. Check that out next time. Peter, thank you for coming on the show, man. We enjoyed having you on, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. And Chad, thank you. Thank you. Remember all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable? We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Those reviews help make the show better, and they help others find the show, and we love that. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And, uh, you know, producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie round table any contributions are appreciated and they will always go into the show to making it better as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies chat the whole point to the little fellow is that no matter how down on his backside he is no matter how well the jackals succeed in tearing him apart he's still a man of dignity <laughs>